Hello, friends. Thanks for tuning in today. This is episode 16 of the Kaderna podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. As many of you already know, we interview a renowned guest on the show uh, once a month. And this month, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Barry Habib at his headquarters in Holmdel, New Jersey. In case you haven't seen Barry on TV or in movies or through many of his other ventures, allow me to give you his quick background. Barry is an American entrepreneur and frequent media resource for mortgage and housing expertise. He appears regularly on Fox and CNBC, where he previously hosted a long-standing show. He's currently the CEO of MBS Highway, the industry's most highly regarded company for transforming salespeople into advisors. Just a few of the awards he's accumulated over the years include the Crystal Ball Award winner by Zillow. He was also ranked the number one real estate forecaster by Pulse Economics out of over 150 of America's top economists. He was the 2019 Mortgage Professional of the Year by National Mortgage Magazine. And he's also the 2019 finalist for the prestigious Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. He has many successful businesses across different verticals, including the mortgage market, healthcare, and more. During his mortgage sales career, he's personally originated over $2 billion in mortgages. Beyond real estate, Barry is also the lead producer and managing partner for Rock of Ages, the 27th longest running show in Broadway history. He's also produced Chris Angel's Mind Freak, another really cool show that's at Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas. And last but not least, he has a book coming out soon called Money in the Streets, uh, which we'll certainly dive into today. So a very eclectic background. We bounce around all these different uh, areas that Barry has touched throughout his career. And I think there's so much that you're going to learn from today. Uh, so I can't wait to get right into it. The Kadana Podcast. Barry, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks so much, Brian. Happy to be here with you. Yeah, very happy to have you on. So, obviously, I mean, you, you keep pretty busy. Where, where were you latest? What was your latest uh, travel or venture that you got into? Yeah, there's a, a lot of travel. I, uh, I'm heading off to California to speak in a couple of days, but I was just in Miami and Phoenix speaking there before that. The week before that, just another typical week. Start off speaking in Salt Lake, then to Vegas, then to Orange County, then back to Vegas. So that's your typical week for you. Oh <laughs> no, actually, it's a little bit busier than a typical week, but there's quite a few speaking engagements that I do and quite a bit of travel. Wow. Well, do you get used to that travel? Do you enjoy it or do you find it, uh, it kind of takes a toll on you? Well, you know, it's not... It's not always wonderful to travel. Air travel is is a bit is a bit trying on your body, and you know we you go on east coast, west coast. Sometimes it's also a bit of a challenge, but the rewards are so great. You know, once you get to the destination and the people, and you know what you try and do is you impact some lives, and people uh, respond to that. Uh, the rewards are so great that uh, it, it overrides the little bit of a hassle that you have to do deal with to get to and from. Uh, although I'm pretty efficient in that I try to make sure that um, the way I operate my business here is uh, is one that it allows me to do a lot of the things that I would normally have have to get done uh, anyway during travel. You know, you have Wi-Fi in the air and I've got a great team here, great assistants. So we, we're, we're back and forth constantly and trying to make sure that uh, we're getting as much stuff done as we can, even though I'm on the road. That's fantastic. Very cool. Yeah, we talk a lot on the show about work-life balance and how to, you know, achieve some professional success like you've done, but at the same token, uh, you know, kind of enjoy yourself along the way. So kind of in that vein of, you know, healthy and wealthy, do you still find you're able to get your daily workouts in or, or are you just always kind of in flux trying to adapt? So, you know, this is an important thing and, and life balance is, is very important. So with regards to getting the workouts in, when I'm here, I'm really good. I'm usually, you know, I'm probably about 80% that I'll be, those days I'll work out while I'm here. On the road, because my schedule is so difficult and because of the demands that I have, for example, we were just talking about I record a, a morning update video every day that goes out to our 20,000 subscribers. So it's not easy to... Uh, to get those workouts in, you know, one other thing that you try and do is, is part of being healthy is trying to sleep, right? So 
not the greatest sleeper anyway. Mm -hmm. So when you're on the road, it makes it harder. So I do sacrifice a bit of the workouts on the road. And also diet is tough on the road too. You know, yeah, of you're, course. you know, they're taking you out to these amazing dinners and you know, you're running that? around. <laughs> it's hard to get that salad. Good choice when you're running through the airport too, you know? <laughs> um, so yes, I am guilty of not being uh, as good as I should. I know I need to be better at that, but that's what life's about, right? Constantly finding places where you can get better. Yep. You know, you mentioned life balance and, um, I think in order to have a great life, you have to sometimes be completely out of balance. Like, for example, people right now in mortgage and real estate, which is the group that I, t I talk to, they need to be out of balance and do a lot more work because they have an opportunity now that just a bit of effort can yield incredible results. You know, mm -hmm. 10 months ago when it was incredibly slow in these industries, that's the time to spend more time with family, to take more time off, to go on vacation. Sure. So I think I think that to be able to best get results from life balance, it means being out of balance for periods of time. You yeah. know, maybe for a season, maybe this, this time I'm going to be taking a lot more time away from work and recharging my battery then. But then when there's an opportunity, you can seize it and be out of balance to capitalize on those wonderful opportunities because otherwise you look back and you yearn for the yesterday and say, oh man, sure. if it was only that type of a market, if only I had that opportunity. Of course. Well, when you have it in your hands, you have to recognize it and you have to seize it. Interesting. That's very well said because I think, you know, a lot of people look at the daily routine or schedule, but maybe if you look at it from a broader standpoint, you can really kind of dive into it. You, some, ha you have to. You have to, have a, you have to have a, always have a big picture view. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. You know, it's one of the things that, you know, I love cars. I love uh, I love time on the track. And one of the lessons that was taught to me by a professional driving teacher was very, very revealing, not just for driving, but for life. And that is, Brian, he said to me, he says, listen, most people, when they drive their car, they look no further than the car in front of them. That's how the vast, if you watch when people drive, just look at their eyes, it'll tell you everything. Everybody looks at the car in front of them. Mm -hmm. But what he said to do is you need to look much further down the road. And the example he gave me is he literally, we were outside, took a bottle of water in the street, put it down, made me walk about 20, step, 20 feet uh, behind that bottle of water. Okay. So six or seven long paces for most of us. He says, okay, look at the bottle. And I looked at the bottle. He says, can you see the road ahead? I said, not really well. And he says, okay, now here's what I want you to do. Look down the road. Can you still see the bottle? I'm like, yeah, I can. He says, if you drive like that, you'll be a much better driver but then me taking it to the next level. If you live like that, you'll have a much better life. You'll be a lot more successful. Most people, Brian, do not look down the road. They don't look at the big picture. They're so focused on what's coming up that they just don't don't take that big picture view. Wow. That's, that's a, kind of a great saying there to kind of get out of the here and now and see down the road. And along those lines, I mean, you've done so much that we just touched on in, in your bio briefly here. Tell me a little bit about like where it started. Where'd you go to school? You know, what were you thinking when you graduated college? Like, how did you get from there? It just kind of, I know we're summarizing, but all the way to here. Like, what were some of those first steps that you took? Well, I almost wasn't. You know, my parents were immigrants and they were very, very poor. The, 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 my ancestry is from Spain, so they, the generations lived in Turkey, but it was a tough place to be. So they wanted to come to the United States. It took a long time. But when they had the opportunity to do so, the government confiscated 94% of everything they had. So they came here really poor and they were older. So back when I was conceived, my mom was nearly 40. My dad was 57. Mm -hmm. So even by today's standards, that's a bit old, but go back to 1959, 1960, that was much, much older. Okay. Yeah, remember life expectancy was a lot, lot shorter as well. So they thought about abortion. That, that was kind of like what they wanted to do, but you know, abortion was illegal back then. And here's the really interesting thing about me is that I was conceived in 1959 and just a few months later is when birth control came out. So oh I just made it under the wire. Wow, so, so you want to, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but grew up really, really poor. Uh, and it taught me a lot of lessons. And, and I, I really, you know, I'm glad I did because that's made me understand how others struggle. And it's helped me to know how important it is to help others to get above that struggle and to want to do better. Um, so that's really plays an important role in the things that I do. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad passed away when I was 11. And while my parents were very intelligent people, heck, my dad spoke 10 languages, my mom spoke seven. 
That's pretty amazing that someone would speak even seven languages. It's but incredible. what's really incredible is that she was illiterate. She never learned to read or write because when she was a young girl, her parents took her out of school because her mom got really sick and she had to perform all those duties as a young girl. So imagine being illiterate and being able to speak seven languages. So if only she had an opportunity. And so I look back on that and all the sacrifices that they made. Um, and it, it really uh, inspires me to want to do good and take advantage of the chances and the opportunities we have. You know, we, we, I don't think we often, you know, I start every day with gratitude. I try and look at, it just sets my, the tone of my day better. And, I, and everybody could do it at a different time. I do it after my first cup of coffee in the morning. And I just, I, I, I actually say it out loud, all the things that I am grateful for and that I am so fortunate and blessed to have. Because if you focus on that, then I think all of the invariable issues and difficulties and headaches that you're going to get throughout the day, it can put them in a little better perspective for you. Sure. So, um, you know, when, when I was growing up, while I was facing some adversity, it really taught me how to appreciate things. And, uh, and that stays with me. So uh, as a young man, um, my first kind of venture into the business world was when uh, uh, I, I started to sell stereos out of the trunk of my car. So it was my first, my first bit of self-employed work. And uh, it taught me a lot of lessons. And the real lesson that I got from that is that uh, bad things can be great opportunities. So uh, because I would sell out of the trunk of my car and because at this time there were no cell phones, when you know electronic equipment goes bad so somebody would call i would leave a phone number for an answering service and these people would see me out of the trunk of my car so they figured they'd probably never see me again but they would call the answering service they were kind of shocked when i called back even more shocked when i drove out to their home to fix or replace it and it's like you could see the law of reciprocity kick in here which is my first business lesson that they felt obligated to either buy more things or tell others about me and while I didn't want things to go wrong, I recognized at a very early age that when things go wrong, it's really an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to now be able to show our character, to shine through, and to build probably the most important element in a relationship or in business, and that's trust. Yeah. Because once you have that, it transcends price. It tra so much changes when there's trust that's built. Without a doubt. And if, the, if things didn't go wrong, they didn't know how they could trust me. So again, not that I didn't want things to go wrong, but sometimes things go wrong and we get depressed, we get upset, we get frustrated. Instead of looking at it that way, look at the opportunity that could come of it sure. to show your character and to build for the future. That's awesome. And talk about turning you know lemons into lemonade. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. So so from there, I uh, I yeah, kind of graduated from that to the real estate world. So uh, as I the traveled the, the the areas within the New York metropolitan area, I was a curious young man and uh, I was interested in real estate and I had seen values in New Jersey being a little bit more uh, what I thought to be uh, offered more opportunity than prices which were higher in New York. You can get a lot more in New Jersey and mm -hmm. still pretty close by. So I put a, a, a couple of people together, family and friends, and we started to purchase some real estate properties which were, you know, homes that we flipped, homes that we rented, homes that we renovated. And little by little, I started to learn about this amazing opportunity that's open in real estate. And one of the things that I had, uh, I had done from there was start to inquire about information on how the mortgage business works okay. and got into the mortgage business kind of on a whim and really took to it like a fish to water and have some wonderful stories of, of, of how I got into the mortgage business and how my mortgage business grew. But became the top originator in the United States uh, on two different occasions during the 90s. Wow. Opened my own company, built it, sold it because I had an idea. And the idea that I had was that you know, there's point, there was a really big point of friction when somebody would take out a mortgage. They wouldn't know how to uh, lock in their interest rate. And, and if the market would move, it would, it would hurt them. Either they were unhappy because they locked in an interest rate and rates improved and then they were stuck or they didn't lock in their interest rate and then rates went up and now they were in an uncomfortable position because they had to pay more. So I fixed that by watching the market for people, sending out uh, phone calls or, or recorded phone calls to warn them or text messages. And that grew into an amazing business, which I, uh, I, I sold 
uh, it became international and, and uh, it became a wonderful, wonderful business. And then after selling that and sitting out my non-compete, I had some opportunity to do some fun things. So I did some acting. Really? Yeah, back cool. when I was somewhat reasonably decent looking and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, did, did uh, I, I, it really was quite, quite an adventure for me. So I had done a lot of TV. And I got the first opportunity because somebody had liked my voice. Yeah, and, so we, and that was just on the side, or, or you, you temporarily left real estate. Yeah, I, I kind of I sold the company, and okay. I was kind of like well, kind of a free agent now. I could, yeah. kind of, could, could done a lot of different things. So I had time was available to me, and it was, it was one of those rare instances where you have some money and you have the time. So it was kind of an open slate. Yeah. So I've been continuously doing. I had my own show on CNBC for thirteen years, and somebody liked my voice and they said you know hey look we want to put you in a movie so for I, I hear I'm going to be in a movie I'm like oh yeah wow I'm going to be the next you know <laughs> whatever you know yeah. movie you uh, star right yeah. so yeah I'm all oh, great well it wasn't quite what I thought they had put me in this movie it's a kids movie Nick and Tristan Megadega I play Colonel Kaboom they put me in this white beard and hair and pastel blue <laughs> Big, big Captain Crunch looking thing. So wasn't exactly your leading man kind of role there. But, but you'll take it. But from that, I got into a couple of different movies. One of the movies that I was in was a really good movie, by the way, with an all-star cast called Barry Monday. It's an excellent movie if you haven't seen it. M-U-N-D-A-Y. And I actually made the trailer. I play a doctor in the movie. Okay. It's a very funny, heartwarming movie. But the guy who wrote it um, also... Uh, introduced me to Rock of Ages, which was the script he wrote. Of course, yeah. So Definitely it's funny how just things, that. you know, things just, yeah, if, you, if you could see opportunities. Um, so myself and four other terrific guys, we, we uh, put the show off Broadway. People went crazy for it. We put it on Broadway. And before you know, it's the 27th longest running show in Broadway history. Jeez. So, uh, so yeah, while we're on that, you know, where did Rock of Ages come from? Was that, it, it was somebody's outside idea and then they brought, they brought you in for a certain role or... No, I, I, I had no role um, as far as theatrically within the, the thing, although I did play the record producer when it became a movie. I, I was in the <laughs> movie so cool. as the record producer. But no, this was Chris, Chris Dorenzo's idea, and he just did a beautiful job with the script. It is a brilliantly written script. It's a wonderful story. Uh, he is a very, very talented man. And what we were able to do was... Um, have the business side, put up the finances, run the business side of it, um, which which you know requires some creativity as well, of course, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we were we were fortunate enough to uh, to have it as a really well received show. I mean, the material is great, the show is great itself, and uh, those of us on the business side tried to do the very best we can to uh, to, to make this something that uh, would endure and. Uh, it, it's had it's had a wonderful run. I bet that's that's awesome. It's a show that I saw actually on a cruise ship, and um, yeah, we it was exciting. To, we enjoyed it. it yeah, really we had cool. to deal with Norwegian cruise lines, and, and yep, uh, yeah, it. still there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Good for you. And now, can you point to like a specific uh, time in your life where you saw this all start to turn over, where you were working so hard every day, you know, in the mortgage world, and then was it through networking or a particular contact or a moment that launched all these other opportunities for you? Well, you know, um, I, I think a lot of it has to do with your mindset. Um, so if you have the right mindset and you have the right uh, work ethic, you tend to get luckier, you know. Okay. So um, people need to look for opportunities. This, the name of my book is Money in the Streets. Mm -hmm. That's because when my parents were in Europe and so many immigrants hear this story, they say, oh, America is such a rich country, there's just money in the streets. Uh, all you have to do is pick it up. And when they came here, they used to tell me the story when I was a little boy. It was, you know, they would kind of half laugh about it. But it was kind of sad that people would think about that as they were in, you know, in a very impoverished state. But as I started to explore the world of business and uh, from stereos to mortgages to, you know, real estate, to, you know, all these things that I was getting involved in, what I discovered is, and I sat down and had the conversation with my mom one evening and I said, you know, mom, there, there really is money in the streets. All you need to do is know how to pick it up. And it's looking for those opportunities. You know, just to give you an example, uh, when I first got into mortgage, and there's so many, I'm just gonna pick one that just popped sure. into my head. Okay. When I first got into the mortgage business, um, I was young, I was new, and I just had the birth of my twins, Dan and Nicole. They were two months old, so probably not the smartest thing to change careers, but I did what oftentimes young men do, and they make decisions that maybe aren't the most 
intelligent decisions to make. So now that I'd made this decision, I realized how hard it was. Uh, nobody wanted this wet behind the ears kid to handle their largest transaction and real estate agents who typically refer these mortgages out, they weren't gonna trust me either. So at that point in time, lots of people just give up, but I couldn't give up, I knew my why. I knew why I was doing this. My, my, my two, two month old twins that needed me to make sure that failure was not gonna be an option. There was no way in hell I was gonna let those kids down. I was gonna do whatever it took. Yep. And what that meant that I was gonna do was knock on doors at night and ask people if they wanted to refinance. And some people threw me out, some people called the cops, but a bunch of people wrote loans with me. And uh, I started to do well. And then I discovered that anytime I had a captive audience that they would be a potential customer. Meaning, if I'm your client, if I go into a pizza shop and I'm paying you money, you had to listen to me for a minute, okay? Yeah. <laughs> my, my, while I'm getting my hair cut, they had to listen to me. My account had to, I had a, anybody I was paying money to had to listen to me. So I told those people what I did and I got rewarded. So seeing opportunities that no one else saw, everyone else in the mortgage business, if they went to get a haircut, they could have gotten all kinds of referrals from their haircutter. Because when you sit in your the, the, that hairdresser's chair yeah. and you're sitting there, the number one question that's asked in the world is, so what's new, right? And we all say that. Hey, how you doing? What's new, right? We don't even realize it, but we all say it. And if you're sitting in that chair and the hairdresser says to you, so what's new? And if what happens to be new is that, oh yeah, I'm looking at buying a home. And he would hand one of my cards and say, well, I've got a great guy that comes here. And I would pick up a couple of transactions a month from that. And it was all these unconventional sources that helped me propel my business to, to the degree of this. And you know this, Brian, in New Jersey, there's a lot of tolls in many places, parts around the country, there's a lot of tolls. And today they're all automated the way you pay for them if you'd like to. You know, you could get one of those tags and put it in your car and it'll automatically hit you. Well, back before that, when I was doing mortgages, we didn't have that automation. So you had to either give exact change and throw it in the basket, you might recall that. Yeah. Or you go to where there's a toll collector. It's a much longer line. You give them a dollar or something like that and it gives you the change. But it's a longer line, it takes longer. Even though I had the exact change, I had the quarter, I could have thrown it in the basket, but I went to the toll collector. And boy, my buddies used to give me so much crap over this. Like, Barry, again? That's a, no, that's a, <laughs> We're waiting in this line. Exactly. <laughs> but when I would, I would hand the toll collector the quarter and my business card, and I only had a couple of seconds, and said, listen, if you'd like to me to help you create some wealth, please give me a call. And I gave him my card. And that's all the chance I had. My buddies would give me so much crap about it until one day, a guy by the name of Steve Horton from the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority, he called me not only to do his mortgage, but I did 17 of his coworkers. Wow. So there... You never know. You see... There were tons of people in mortgage and real estate that rode the Garden State Parkway and the New Jersey Turnpike every day. Mm -hmm. But I was the only guy who was giving my card out to the toll collector and waiting online to do so. So yeah. it's seeing opportunities that no one else sees. And if you can, if you can, so when you say, was there a moment? There's a long way of answering your question. That's okay. I think that the moment occurs when you change your perspective. If you change your focus and you change your perspective, you change the world. Yeah. And that's really the moment that it happens. When you start to think that I'm going to find opportunities, I'm going to discover these opportunities. They're all around me. They're right in front of me. Instead of just going about our day, discovering where they could be, looking at things from the point of view of how can I do something that could help other people? Where can I do good? What can I do or what can I learn from this that I can now not only absorb, but absorb and teach? that perspective will cause an enormous change in your life for the better and for the better of everyone else that's around you. You know, people sure. always say, you know, that person is so magnetic. You know, so you know, we hear that, right? I wish I could be magnetic like that person. I'm going to give you the secret to being magnetic. It's not that hard as far as what it is. It's two things. Everybody you come into contact with, one, make them feel better. doesn't take that much to do that. Two, make them smarter. Give them something that will help them. But the trick is you can't give what you don't have. You see, you have to yeah. put in the hard work to acquire knowledge. you got to do that hard work so that when you come into contact with someone, you make them feel better, make them feel smarter, give them something of value, and they will crave more of that, I promise you. Definitely. They'll be drawn to you. And that's the definition of being magnetic is when you have people drawn to you. Because who doesn't want to feel better? Who doesn't want to feel smarter? Who doesn't want to learn more and yep. gain more value? It's a universal truth. So if you are able to provide that, you will be much more magnetic. Got it. I like that. 
it's like that old saying that you know you change the way you look at things and then the things you look at will change that's for so sure I, I agree wholeheartedly and so it sounds like you went from you know being a producer out there just hustling your butt off to eventually transitioning to giving the information um, to the to the industry or to your peers or people that eventually worked for you which did you like more did you like being more of a, a player or more of a coach so I, I still consider myself a player uh, as well as a coach because that's part of being a coach is, is playing and participating. You know, you uh, while I'm not active doing things in real estate and mortgage now as a participant, I'm still active to the degree where uh, even in the coaching, it's it's um, it's on a large scale. But my participation as a player is gaining the knowledge. So maybe it's not playing in the game, but it's gaining the insights, gaining the knowledge that I can share. So that's that's uh, that's constantly participating. That never ends because yeah. the world is always changing, always turning. And don't be overwhelmed by that. That's a wonderful opportunity because that allows you to stay ahead. That allows you to make the barrier between someone else who doesn't do those things and yourself greater. It makes it harder for people to catch up to you if you're constantly willing to, uh, to, to be better. And the rewards are so great. Not only is it great for yourself, to gain knowledge and, and, and to gain wisdom, but it is incredibly rewarding to pass it on to others and see the changes that you can bring upon in their lives. Of course. And now you've done so much, like what's what's the next step? Do you Are you one of those people you ever think of retirement or golden years or this is it, you want to eat what you breathe this way? I'm kind of not the retirement kind of guy, you know? Uh, as long as God gives me the ability to continue doing good, I want to just try and continue to do that. I, I don't think that... Um, I'm the kind of guy who, for an extended period of time, would want to, you know, go fishing, play golf, that type of stuff. It sounds nice, but I love what I do. I really do. And if you could find something that gives you fulfillment, you know, th there's a big difference between success and success with fulfillment. So you can be very successful financially, but you can be very miserable. You know, may not have a good mindset. But if you can do something that you can have fulfillment from, that makes you feel good, that makes you feel like you have a purpose, that makes you feel that you're doing good in the world, um, that's a really good feeling. And then look, it doesn't have to be for everybody on a larger scale. It doesn't have to be international or to big groups. Fulfillment can come by just you know a parent working with a child or sure. working with other children. You know, it, it's, it could come in so many forms uh, uh, of knowing that what you're doing is making a difference in a positive way in the lives of others. That's great. And now switching gears a little bit, I mean, obviously you were named the top real estate forecaster, like I said, by both Zillow and Pulsonomics. Um, so tell us, you know, like right now, here we are, 2019. What do you think about the real estate market? I think the real estate headed? market, I think the real estate market is really, really strong. There are more buyers than sellers. And, you know, again, you have to look at the big picture. So when you take a look at the median age of a first time home buyer, it's 33 years old. So what I like to do is I looked at the birth rates from where we were 33 years ago, because those people that were born 33 years ago, those are going to start to come to the market as first-time homebuyers. For the next six years, um, you'll see more and more of those people because 33 years ago, if you go back to 1986, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, the birth rates climbed at each of those years. So that means for the next six years, you'll have more and more people coming in to the housing market looking to purchase a first-time home. And historically, when you look at that, that is what can drive the trends. A lot of people don't look at that big picture, but if they would have, they would have been able to tell you just like we did. The reason I sold my company before the housing bubble because that is because we'd seen this coming. You know, I, saw, I sold my company in 07. Um, the reason for this was because when you look back to 1973, you saw an enormous drop in the birth rates. Why? a very good reason for that. Abortion became legal in 1973. So abortion becomes illegal, uh, becomes legal, forgive me, in 1973. Okay. If you look at the birth rates in the United States, they drop precipitously, which means that 33 years later, you get to 2006, there's so many fewer people to buy homes, yet builders have paid no attention to it. They were building homes like crazy. And that's one of the reasons why you have a housing bubble. So if you can look at interesting, you, you look at things differently. Again, big picture. Don't look at the water bottle. Don't look at the car yeah, in front yeah, of you. Look down the road. Look gotcha. at the bigger picture. So focus is really important, and focus goes 
as far as importance on, on positive and negative too. You know, you can look at the same thing and one person's going to dwell and focus on the negative. The other one's going to see where the positive attributes can be. And I can tell you there'd be a very big difference in the success levels between those two people okay. looking at the same thing just yeah. differently. Very true. And now if we look at, at least here in Jersey, I know we have listeners around the country, but in Jersey, everywhere you go, it seems like there's just new townhomes, new condos popping up, you know, tear down these woods or whatever, build more condos. What's going on with the, the condo world versus the, the good old single family home that we grew up in? Well, b believe it or not, um, with respect to building, building for most of the country is not keeping up with the demand. It's not. At least in homes that are at the entry level. So if you want to know how your housing market is doing today, it's easy to find the median home price in your market. It's one of the things we do is we do we provide that for everyone. So the median home price in your market, go a little bit above the median home price. And then everything from the lowest level home to a little bit above the median home price, super hot. Good luck trying to find a home. Those homes are appreciating. You're doing great. The further up you go away from the median home price, the slower the real estate market will be. The luxury side of things is really slow for most of the country, almost all the country. Uh, but the a, a little bit above median home price and below, super hot. So the condo market, to answer your question, it depends. Upper end luxury condos, they will struggle. If you're building entry level homes, they are in short supply, in high demand. You can almost not build enough of those. Interesting. And now, what do you think about, you know, all the millennials that we hear so much about? We have a good microcosm here where they're living in Hoboken, let's say. Mm -hmm. they're, they're getting their first city job. They're working there maybe from 25 to 35. Do you see ever like a, an exodus of sorts of that whole population that eventually they say, you know what, I, I want to get married. I want to have a kid. I want to go back to more of suburbia as opposed to. Yeah, there's generational changes. You know, when people graduated high school in the 50s, they used to get married. You know, and have kids shortly thereafter. It was not uncommon in the 60s to be married at 20 and having kids at 21. But then things changed. And what you have today is it is an era where people are waiting longer to get married and waiting longer to have kids. I don't know what the specific reason is, but lifespans have increased rather significantly, right? Before, people weren't expected to live much past 65. Now, you know, they say there's somebody alive on the planet who's going to live to 150. And look, I'm very, very big on biotechnology and what's going on. And, you know, you can read stuff about CRISPR and Cas9, but there's going to be a breakthrough probably in the next 10 years, which will extend life expectancy another 10 or 15 years. So uh, I think that there's a lot of optimism here. But getting back to what I was, my point is that maybe people are waiting longer because they're living longer. Hmm. And, uh, there's not as not much of a rush. rush. Yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe you had to rush to get there because you would never have been alive to see your grandkids. Okay. Yeah. Now you could wait a little bit longer and you're going to still live longer. So perhaps that's the reason. I don't know what the reason is, but yeah. factually, where people are getting married in their 20s, it's not uncommon for that to be in their 30s. Where people are having kids in their early 20s, maybe in their early to mid 30s, their first kids. Yeah. And, that things, and what, what that means, yeah, though, what that means is that. If part of that is buying a home in the process, maybe you wait till you're married, you wait till you have kids before you buy a home for some people, a, a large enough chunk of the population. So would there be an exodus from those areas? Uh, it'll be replenished. So I don't think you'll see an exodus because new younger people want to move into those Correct. markets. Yeah. But I think you'll see a lot of people coming out of that desires of their own home, backyard, place for their kids to grow. Okay. And along those lines of this kind of delayed onset adulthood that you, that you hear about, um, that certainly may be one reason that you just cited, uh, that we have more life, so there is no rush. Another I hear a lot is, you know, um, I'm getting started a little later in my career, and I'm just bogged down with these student loans that are just around my neck. Talk to me about how that affects going and buying a house and actually getting a mortgage. So debt in and of itself is, is a burden, whether it's student loan or credit card. Look, there's no shortage of opportunity. Everybody who's listening here will probably go home today and look in their mail, and there will be credit card offers for you. So, you know... Uh, it is difficult to constrain yourself. You know, credit, uh, you know, what, what credit does is it, there's two ways to buy something. You could save up the money and then pay for it cash. Or 
You could have instant gratification. Who doesn't want instant gratification? Where I can take that purchase that was to occur in the future, make it happen today, and then pay it along the way or yeah. in reverse. So uh, a lot of people, because of this desire to have instant gratification, are making those purchases, pulling them forward, and listen, they're bombarded with, with, with teasers and advertisements and incentives to do so. Uh, and unfortunately for a lot of people, it's putting them in debt in general. And here's the paradox. The paradox is that the one thing that could bail you out of debt is home equity, but the debt can prevent you from buying a home. Mm -hmm. So here's what's happening today. There are so many people that what we are helping to show them how to do, and this is literally life-changing, and if you're listening to this and you have a home, this is going to be a shocking statistic. The percentage of home value that's equity versus loan, if I were to tell you the number, you would not believe it. The Federal Reserve just released it. But most people would think, well, maybe they've got 20% equity, 80% debt, or you know, 30% equity, 70% debt. It's 64% equity, 36% debt in their home. A couple of reasons for that. Home values have appreciated so much in the past eight years, and yet people have been paying their mortgage, so the principal is knocking down the amount owed. Yep. So that that widening that you're seeing, which has been growing at a rate of about 9 or 10 or 11%, depending on the year, per year that this is happening, you own your home for five or six years, all of a sudden now you've got 60%, 65%, 70% equity in your home, but yet those same people have racked up tons of debt. If you pull the equity out of your home, pay off all your debt, don't pocket the savings, take the savings and build it into the new mortgage that you're doing. So in other words, keep your payment the same. Take what you're paying for all your debts and your mortgage, and then take a new mortgage and make the payment on the new mortgage the same. You could take the term of that mortgage and make it 12 years, 14 years, 15 years, instead of the remaining 27 or 26 or 25 years you have left. So you're saving 120 or 150 payments of whatever it is, $3,000 a month. But 12, 13, 14 years from now, your balance on your mortgage is zero. Whereas if you would have kept your mortgage, it could be three, four hundred thousand dollars And that is literally life-changing. What this has been doing for people is dramatically, you know, this is solving the problem. I don't have enough for retirement. I don't have a way to put my kids through college. And use the tools that are in front of you. By the way, what's changed? Nothing. Their payment stays the same. So they're not making any change in the structure of their payment. They're paying exactly the same dollar for dollar outlay monthly. But that's if you own a home. So okay. the point here is... Where are they getting that, that benefit? Is that going to just a lower interest rate? Or how are they the, it's, it's accelerating their payments but with the same payment? Exactly. With, because if your payment were for everything were $4,000 a month for all your debts and your mortgage. Yeah. And maybe the mortgage was was 2500 of that. And you have $1,500 a month in debt. Not that uncommon between car loans sure. and credit cards. Not that okay. uncommon. So now take out a new mortgage. Take the cash out. Pay off all your debt. The new mortgage payment might be $3,000 a month. Okay. So it's higher than the $2,500 you were paying, but less than the $4,000. So now you're saving 1000 bucks a month. Correct. Don't pocket the $1,000 a month. Take the $1,000 a month and either make an additional principal payment on the new mortgage or build it in so that you have a lower term and you'll find out with that extra $1,000, the payment would wind up to be a 12-year mortgage or a 13-year mortgage. Yep. And now every month when you make that mortgage payment, so much more money is going towards principal. It has this exponentially growing effect on the amount of equity that you have. So it is incredible to benefit. So the lesson here is that if you have a home, it's one of the things you should consider. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, know the power that can be in your hands from home ownership. So if you have student loans, which hopefully will help you gain more in your income and earning capabilities and a better job, then don't overindulge in debt. Make those sacrifices early. Don't get yourself in debt. I know it's tempting, but make the sacrifices today. Buy the home, and then over a short period of time, you realize you'll grow so much equity, you can have everything you want. Just map it out right. Yeah, yeah kind of get ahead with, by going without. Um, so with that thought in mind, I, I think that could be a great solution You know, for kind of the average show, trying to get rid of some household debt and stuff. What's your take on a lot of real estate investors that say, you know, I love the mortgages. You know, I want to practice leverage and keep that debt outstanding on these various projects I have so that I can go deploy my capital to more real estate. I love debt. I love the mortgage debt. I think it's great if you're leveraging it and if you're using something that's a term, you know, that we, we call the velocity of money. Okay. It, 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 so, you know, 
if you borrow here, if, if I borrowed money from a bank mm -hmm. and I used it to buy a car that I was going to just, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a Sunday car that's going to be, you know, something I always like this, 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 you know, old antique car. I love it. Or it's a sports car that I want to get. I use it on the weekend. It's convertible. It's nice. Great. Enjoy it. However, if you borrowed the same money from the bank, used it and turned it into a car that you now could use for Uber or Lyft or transportation, well, then you're borrowing money, but you're using that money to make money. That's called velocity of money. Yeah. And when you have velocity of money, that's very smart to go into debt for. Okay? okay. If you're using it for recreation and there's no velocity, well, then you have to decide if that's okay for you. If your lifestyle can deal with it, great. But be wise in the decisions that you're making there because that's enjoyment that's not velocity and benefit. If you take it, I'm, I'm using this Uber just because it's it's it's, oh, a, it's, it's an easy example. it's yeah. an example. But it could be anything. If you're putting it into a if I'm taking money out for business or if I'm taking money out for debt consolidation and then yep. taking the same money and I'm not going to pocket it so I can blow it, I'm taking it to pay down the new mortgage. That's a great use of debt. Yeah. But as you were saying, if you're taking investment properties, investment properties you're typically doing them because you either want to gain cash flow or you want to gain appreciation. So you're gaining velocity. Smart use of debt. Look, Apple. Apple is so wealthy, they have $235 billion, $235 billion in cash. They don't know what to do with it. You could buy countries, plural, with that, right? <laughs> However, do you know they, they still have $122 billion in debt? Why don't they just pay it off? Because of the exact point that you made, leverage. They can use that debt, create velocity of money with that debt, and then they could use it for, for, for uh, benefit. Got it. So defining, you know, leisure versus production and where... Do the same thing Apple does. Do the same thing every large corporation does. You have the power to do it as an individual, and you should be empowered to make those same wise decisions by talking to people like you mm -hmm. that can help them with those decisions. And now the, the question I'm sure everybody's thinking right now with a mortgage expert like yourself, where do you see interest rates going? So I made some amazing calls, which have been very highly publicized. You know, when the 10-year Treasury was at... 3% a few years back, they literally laughed at me on CNBC. You can pull up the tape. They laughed at me when I said, you know, based, we do a lot of technical analysis and, and we've been very, very accurate. I said, 10 year, my opinion is going to 1.39. They thought it was ridiculous. Everybody was forecasting rates to go up. Well, then you go to 1.39, it went to 1.37. But considering it was over 3%, it was an amazing call. So we got a lot of accolades for that. Now, back in May of this year, so you know, we'll go back five months ago, the 10 year treasury was at 2.53. Everybody was forecasting to go. The Mortgage Bankers Association of America was saying they're going higher. They're going. Th Everybody was saying they're going higher. Everybody forecasts higher. I was public about this, and it's been very widely broadcast in mortgage and real estate. I've gotten a lot of accolades and credit. I was just named Mortgage Professional of the Year. A lot had to do because of this amazing call where I said, "Congratulations, thank by you." The way. It's going to test that 1.39, 1.37 area. That was a 2.53. Mm -hmm. Nobody saw it coming. I said, "You better get ready." You better you know, hire people. You're going to have a refinance boom. The real estate market's going to be super strong. It didn't go to 1.39. It went to 1.42. <laughs> That's awfully close. So it dropped 111 of the 114 basis points that I had forecast that it would drop. But I still think it'll get to lower levels. I think we have not seen the lowest rates we've ever seen. And the reason for that is because I see a recession coming. That recession is going to happen next year. And because I see that recession coming couple of things that you need to know. One, real estate does well in recessions. Don't let people talk you out of it. The evidence is empirical. You can see home prices do well. Why? Because interest rates decline precipitously. So any instrument like gold, like longer term bonds that will do well during a recession because of that rate drop, those will perform well. I don't know what the stock market will do, but I can tell you what the history of the stock market is. The history of the stock market is that during recessions, they drop anywhere between 36 and 52%. That's a that's a big hit. So, you know, talking to people like yourself for defensive positions if you see a recession coming. So, why do I see a recession coming? Everybody says the uh, inversion in the yield curve, meaning that longer-term yields yielding less than shorter-term yields. While that has been reliable, the financial engineering that's out there, see the Fed lies. The Fed doesn't want you to see a recession. That's why they never forecast it. Because they, they said there's a recession coming, businesses would seize up, the economy, it would be a self yeah. yeah. So they always lie. So yeah. it's just like if there's something bad about to happen and the little boy says to the daddy, daddy's gonna be, don't worry son, everything's gonna be okay. So the Fed is treating the <laughs> public like, panic. right. The, things are gonna, the, the things are gonna well, it'll be okay, don't worry. So that's what, and, and they think they're doing the right thing by lying, okay? Yeah. So in their eyes, it's a white lie. But it's a lie, nonetheless. So 
the financial engineering that's going on right now, the $65 billion being poured into in quantitative easing every month into shorter term yields. We're cutting, we're going to see another rate cut on October 30th. So trying to push the shorter end down so the yield becomes uninverted, so people stop talking recession. But we have to remember, the yield inversion doesn't cause a recession. It is a symptom of a recession. Okay, So just by fixing the system, if you have a real big problem with, with your leg that's broken, if you take a painkiller, it didn't fix the break in your leg. Okay, right. You just don't feel the pain as much, but there's still a problem. So the economy has an issue. We know manufacturing is very weak. We know it's spilling over into, in, into the service sector. And when you look at things like the cash freight index, which measures shipments around the country, worst level that we've seen in years. So that box you get from Amazon has to be shipped. And if there's less shipments, it means that less delivery. So you look at these early indicators, which are telling us that there is a recession, but the best indicator is the unemployment rate. Here's what I want you to watch out for. Recessions do not happen when the unemployment rate slow. That's when you hear all these people say, oh, how can we have a recession? Unemployment rate low. That's because they have no clue what they're talking about. All you need to do is look at a history of recessions and the rate of unemployment. Recessions do not happen when the unemployment rate's high. They happen when you reach the lowest level in unemployment and then it starts to tick up. Anybody can pull up a chart, take a look from the New York Fed. You can go, it's all out there, okay? You can pull up the chart for unemployment rate and recessions and you can see that once the, once the unemployment rate hits its lowest rate and then starts to tick higher, I mean, I, it's at 3.5% today. It went to 3.6, I wouldn't panic. But I'll tell you what, unemployment rate goes to 4%, there's gonna be a recession that happens over the next six months. There's definitely uh, like an amazing correlation that you'll see over the last 100 years with 100% accuracy. And that's because if things are good, you hire people, right? I'm so busy, things are great, and that starts to pull people off the unemployment ranks and the unemployment rate drops, 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 like we've seen. But then as things kind of even out or slow down, not only do you stop hiring, but you notice people are on Facebook in your office, they're in solitaire, they're playing games you know, on, online. Yeah. So you have to let people go. So that does tick the unemployment rate up, but then here's what really happens. Those people have just lost their jobs. They're not going out for fancy dinners, buying clothes, going on vacations, buying cars. So what happens is, is that those people then, because they buy less, the businesses that depended on their business, they see a slowdown and they have to let people go. That's why the unemployment rate shoots up in such a amazingly quick manner during recessionary periods. And the reason why housing stays in good shape is because while there's a, you know, we have 161 million people in our, in our, in our uh, labor force, so if you see the unemployment rate go from three and a half to six and a half, yes, two million households, last thing in the world they're gonna wanna do is buy a home. Mm -hmm. But rates always drop. You have another half a percent, three quarters of a percent drop in rate, which you'll see what that will do is that'll put about 4 million people into the housing market because what they'll be now is able to buy a home and afford a home that they weren't able to. That's why the housing market does well in recessions. Okay, and a question right there, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but what would you say to the listener that's saying, well, we saw what happened in 2008 and wasn't real estate front and center? You're right, right. so the, the so this is where everyone gets confused. Everyone gets confused, they thought the recession brought on the housing bubble. Couldn't be further from the truth. It was the housing bubble that brought on the recession. What caused the housing bubble? Doing loans for people with zero down, poor credit, no income, no asset, no job. Essentially, fog up a mirror, you got a mortgage. Yeah. Okay. And they did it at a time when, as we talked about previously, the demographics were at its worst level. You had an overabundance of homes being built, 2.1 million homes being built a year. 33 years before that, the birth rates had dropped because of the uh, Roe v. Wade, abortion becoming legalized. And nobody looked at the whole picture. Well, I did. That's why I sold my company back then. You can see here. I sold my company June 29, 2007 is when we closed upon it. Uh, right there. Yep. So uh, when when we looked upon when we look at those factors, you could kind of see that this was not coming out to be a bit a, a good outcome. So you're saying the real estate caused it, but then once no, the real estate, yeah, the, yeah, the real estate market caused the okay. recession, and then the recession itself was amplified because of the of the problems that we had in the housing market because of the housing bubble that, that amplified what we had okay so it, it could be on the front end but then once you're in the recession then you're saying moving forward it's you know performing okay correct yes yes if okay. you bought your home the day before the recession in 2009 you're a really happy person today average person stays in home 10 years you made a boatload of appreciation yeah so even the home values dropped a little bit they have gone up quite a bit over the last eight years okay Interesting. All right, so and kind of the piggyback on that. So you say that interest rates are going down again. Um, what's, you know, everybody sees that as a positive, that that's kind of keeping the markets afloat and such. 
What's the downside? Oh, it's a terrible oh, negative. It's unbelievably interest rates. It's it's horribly punitive. It's it's horrible because it wasn't that long ago that if you had retired, you can get a safe yield, meaning no risk. Like 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 take the example of that would be like a three year treasury. You'd say I could put my money in a three year treasury. There's zero risk. There's zero risk of it defaulting. There's almost no movement in principle, so I have to, I don't have to worry about that. But yet I get a yield of five percent or so. So if you were fortunate over your lifetime, just to use a round number, and saved a million dollars, you know, if you got 5% on that, that's $50,000 a year. And I'm not saying that you're going to be the wealthiest person around, but that's some money that you can at least, that plus Social Security. You, 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 but if you're getting 1%, that means you'll either save up a million dollars, and now you'll have $10,000, which isn't going to cut it, or you'll have to have saved $5 million to get that same $50,000 a year. Not an easy task, okay? It's not easy to save a million dollars for retirement. Yeah. So these are, are, are challenges that are being brought about by these, listen, the most important price in the world, the most important price in the world is one thing, and that's the cost of money. Mm -hmm. So that's the rate that the Federal Reserve puts out there. You have 12 people. There's over 7 billion of us. 12 people. Decide that. Those 12 people have never so much as run a lemonade stand or had a newspaper out. And they are deciding the price for the most important thing in the world, the cost of money. That's why you have these boom and bust cycles. That's why the Fed has been so terrible in their forecasting. This is dabbling. It's like mad scientists who don't know what they're doing by experimentation. And it's us, the public, that has to suffer with this. Yeah. You know, when the Fed decided that what they wanted to do was quantitative easing, and bring interest rates down. They wanted to punish you from savings. And they wanted to make you do one of two things. Don't put your money in the bank. I mean, all the things you would teach your kid to do, yeah. save for rainy day, all the good things, you know. The Fed is saying, don't do that. Don't, we're making, we're gonna punish you to put your money away. In fact, if you are in Germany or Denmark today, do you know you have to pay for any amount over $100,000 or 100,000 euro in the bank? You pay a quarter percent, you pay them. It's like putting your furniture in storage, for yeah. goodness sake. So, what they have done is they have done two things, punished you for savings, so they want you to either spend it to try and juice the economy or put it in the stock market. And that's why you have these oversized returns in the stock market. But the thing of it is, is that grandma, who should be in the safest thing, is now got her money in, you know, in, in high-tech companies and uh, in the stock market. She's got her money in Netflix, for goodness sakes. And when those things turn during a recession, what are these poor people going to do? That is the real crisis that hasn't unfolded yet, but it will unfold. Yeah. Calling a recession is no big deal. There's going to be a recession. We are, we, you always have, there's boom and bust cycles. Sure. But when the next recession comes, and it's coming, we don't know exactly when, I think next year is about right, but we don't know when it comes, but the fallout from this will be so huge because everybody has their money in equities and nobody has their money in these safe vehicles because they've been punished to do so. Yeah. And last question, I mean, we saw, you know, post-2008, the Fed was able to react well on interest rates and to kind of boost back up the market, pump all the money in. If the recession, like you say, if that does come now... You got one and a half percent already, Fed funds rate. Where, where do we go? Do we go to negative interest rates? We will never have negative interest rates here in the United States because you can see what it's done in Japan and what it's doing in Europe, and it is destroying the banking system. So you need a banking system, especially here in the United States. The reason why it destroys the banking system is because banks need margin. So when banks take in money, they pay you a low rate, okay, yep. and then they lend it out at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. The more compressed the yield spread gets, the more, uh, if, if interest rates were to go to a negative position, it's very hard to make money in your banking system when you have negative trending rates. Okay. So because of that, Japan is seeing all kinds of issues in their banking system. Europe is starting to see this. So that's why these yields are coming out. And, and one of the reasons why we've seen a little bit of a bump up in yields of late is because Mario Draghi, who was one of the mad scientists in Europe, the head of the European Central Bank, he's departing at the end of this month. And as Christine Lagarde takes over as ECB chair November 1st, it is perceived that Christine Lagarde does not have an appetite for negative yielding rates like the 17 trillion that's out there mm -hmm. all over the world. And the fact that she would look to get yields out of that negative because she wants a good strong banking system, Yields in the United States are going up lately in sympathy for this. But when we eventually do hit the recession, it'll cause yields to come back down. Got it. Interesting. So obviously you're very passionate about this. I mean, you, you can tell right away. What, and maybe the last question we'll kind of wrap up with, 
this versus Rock of Ages. So the average Joe out there says, ah, mortgages, where they are what they are. Rock of Ages, now they're like, all right, I got to tune into this podcast. Where do you want to spend your time going forward? Like, what, what, what really makes you tick? What do you have more fun doing? So, so Rock the- of Ages is a lot of fun, but, you know, it, it's, it, and it's, it, I was at the show last night, you know, and, and I get to do some amazing things. Like, so many professional athletes love the show. I did a Yankee night where I had, I put CC Sabathia in the show a couple of months ago. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, Tony Robbins, who's a dear friend, he's one of my partners. He, uh, he, he is uh, a friend of mine, and, and I've taken him to the show, which was great. Uh, last night I was with a, a very well-known international speaker, uh, Steve Sims. Uh, took him to the show last night, so it's been great. Uh, Randy Zuckerberg, you know Mark Zuckerberg's sister. She, she's a she's a dear friend. She's coming over to my house this evening um, for dinner. She, she is she's just an amazing person. She's part of the show too. I've heard so. her speak as well. Oh, she's an amazing person and a great speaker and a great author too. So it's it's created amazing life experiences for me. Um, but I'm much more passionate about helping other people. And whether that's in my book, whether that's speaking, uh, whether that's you know in business and in, in providing value that gets passed on to others, that's what, I'm, that's what makes me tick. That's what I think about every day is like, how can I get better at this? What, what can I do that will help others? Um, and my book, when it eventually comes out, the manuscript's done mm-hmm. for Money in the Streets. Uh, it's an amazing book. Randy Zuckerberg wrote the forward for it. Tony Robbins loves it. He's given all kinds of accolades. And so many big, you know, Jay Abraham's given it big accolades. And uh, I'm, uh, my literary agent right now I'm working with who does all the big stuff. You know, she wouldn't take you on. She does Jordan Belfort stuff, you know, Tony Robbins stuff. So she uh, she thinks that the book will hit the bookstores probably in the fall of next year. Okay. But the manuscript's done right now. Essentially, the book is done, and there's so much good in it. That's right. what makes me passionate. And now, Money in the Streets, the book, That's is that something that's got anything to do with mortgages and real estate, or this is... These are a lot of... Uh, th- this is for everyone. Okay. So I didn't want to write a book for the mortgage industry, real estate. This is for everybody. If you want to see ways to find opportunities, if you want more fulfillment in your life, if you want to be inspired about overcoming whatever the adversities you are, whether they be health and... Uh, fear, whether they be business-wise, whether it's you know hiring a team, it is a it's a life blueprint and guide for you to achieve not just success but success with fulfillment in your life. And it's a very easy read. I I, 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 I I write the way I speak. It is very plain. I don't ever try and impress anybody with expensive words that you have to look up. It and it's funny too. There's a lot of there's a lot of embarrassing stories about me that are in there. Uh, I've made a boatload of mistakes. I am very vulnerable in the book. I talk about all my screw-ups and uh, all the things. I, I am no Superman. I'm not, you know, it's not like I'm not the bravest guy. I'm not the, the smartest guy. Not, but I talk about all these mistakes. But what the lessons are is what really comes out of it for people. Is there's ways for you to look at this and say, wow, I can use that in my life. Can't wait. I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for it. And now to wrap up, all of our listeners love the lightning round. So what we'll do is we'll just run through some quick questions here, one, two-word answers, and um, get to know you a little bit better. So without further ado, I'll just fire away some questions here. What would you say is your favorite movie? Um, Maybe Midnight Run. It's an old movie with Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro, but uh, there's a lot of them. It's hard to pick your favorite, but Midnight Run. (laughs) Okay. And your favorite food? Oh God, that's a weakness of mine. Uh, boy, that could be steak, Italian. I mean, I, I just, you know, a good steak is really hard to beat. Okay. And your favorite book? Um, you know, it's it's kind of my favorite book. Might be the it's almost always the last one that I read. You know, because I try and find good books. Uh, I, I really like Randy Zuckerberg's Pick Three or Steve Sims' Blue Fishing or, I mean, there, there's just been so many good books to read out there that it's hard to you know on the spot pick one, but. It's usually like the last one, you know, okay. that I've read. Got it. And if you had a quote or a motto that you, that you lived by, what would that be? Well, in business, you know, we kind of spoil everybody. So we spoil our customers and, and uh, we spoil our, our employees. So that would be the way, to, the, the way that we want a just simple philosophy to live by in business. Um, to spoil people. To spoil people, you know. So <laughs> I think if you, if you do things for the right reasons, you know, um, just be kind to others. Don't expect anything in return. Okay. Uh, things really, things really start to start to have grace in your life. You know, just just the more that you, uh, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a very spiritual person. 
Okay. So that the more you realize that there's a higher purpose and there's, you know. Okay. That's a long quote there, but that's, yeah. uh, that's a great attitude on life. Who was your hero growing up? Well, man, it had to be my mom, you know. She's a single mom because my dad passed away when I was younger, and she taught me so many great values. So, uh, so just seeing how she overcome challenges. You know, we used to ride the subways, and we were poor as anything. But when she would see somebody that was in worse straits than we were, she'd always manage a way to find out to give them a few coins. And she would turn to me and say, you know, it's always good to help people. So she instilled good values for me. And you're in the mortgage world now, done so many things. What was your favorite subject when you were a kid? Oh, man. Uh, well, I was a sports junkie. I loved sports. So anything that had to do with sports was my favorite, but math. I was, uh, yeah. I've been very blessed and gifted in math. I'm able to do uh, really difficult calculations, and my brain still can do them. Okay. And you're a very busy man. How much do you sleep at night? That's something I have to work on because I don't sleep enough and I'm learning more and more and more about how important sleep is. So I probably sleep about five hours a night. I need to find a way to get over six hours a night. I need to make it more of a priority. It's hard, but I'm trying to learn how to do that because it, it does for all of us. It's really important to learn about it. I'm learning about it and, and I'm a little nervous that I'm not doing it right. Gotcha. And lastly, where was your favorite vacation? Oh my gosh, so many beautiful places, but I gravitate towards Bermuda. Bermuda, okay, yeah, 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 I'm a big fan. It's, yeah. it's close and it's beautiful. Yeah. One of my shortest answers on this, by the way. <laughs> Not quite lightning. <laughs> there we go, Bermuda, yeah, exactly. Any parting words that you want to leave with our listeners, Barry? No, I think that you really are doing such good things here by sharing some, some ideas from people. Uh, you know, don't get overwhelmed when you see something happen and you say, oh my gosh, that's out of my reach. Don't do that, you know. Uh, I, I was gonna, can I, do, I have, do we have time to share one? For right that? Well, so here's please, one, one final true story. So I love magic, and I, act, I produced Chris Angel's Mind Freak in Vegas. I have no idea how he does these tricks. But a few years back, I went to go see David Copperfield in New Jersey in New Brunswick at the State Street Theater. Okay. So I go to it, and every trick was amazing. I mean, I had no clue how he did it. So now he says, okay, we're going to get audience participation. I'm going to throw these balls into the audience. And when the music stops, if you have one of those balls, you can come up. There's going to be 12 people that sit in chairs here. I'm going to cover you with a tarp, and then I'm going to make you disappear. Well, this was right up my alley because now I could learn how a trick is done, right? So I'm, I'm like dying to do this. So he throws, there's 3,000 people in the State Street Theater. So he throws out these, there's 16 balls he throws out. And they're bouncing and the music's, and one comes close to me and I, you know, you have to hit it away if the music's still playing. So the music stops. I see a ball. I lunge for it. I think I knocked over a few people. Steal from but, a little kid. But, but, but some poor little kid. No, no, I wouldn't have done that. But I did get the ball. Now I go up to the stage. I go up proudly to the stage. And freaking David Copperfield, he says, okay, 12 people sit in the seats. But he points to me and says, you're going to stand in one of the corners. And four people sit in the cor- stand in the corners. So we're not going to be part of the trick. We're going to be the up-close witness. So not only did I not see how he made these people disappear, but he did it right a foot in front of me. Now I'm completely frustrated, right? <laughs> so I'm like, jeez, what the fr-? you know? So I still tried to focus on the enjoyable time we had. Well, remember Mark Haynes from CNBC? The next year, he, we, we were good friends, but we rested, rest his soul. He was a good man. Um, he says, Barry, David Copperfield, you want to go? I'm like, I went last year, it was good. He says, well, let's go. I said, okay, maybe there'll be some new tricks. So I go again to the show. Yeah. Same exact tricks, but it was still good. I had no idea. I did. And then the finale, the balls again. So me being the optimistic person, I'm saying, maybe I can catch a ball again. The 16 balls come. Somehow, someway, I got another ball. There's 3,000 people. There's only 16 balls. The chances are one out of 187.5 people. I catch a ball. I'm going up to the stage so proud. And do you freaking believe you wanted me to stand in the corner again? Oh now, I'm not going to give up now that I know. So here I am in the middle of a show, live. I'm negotiating with David Copperfield to say, please, can you please let me? You made me to the corner last year. Can I please get in the trick? He says, are you a magician? I said, no, I'm in the mortgage business. I said, please let me get so. Uh, I, he lets me get up and be in the trick. So I know it's a long story, but here's what the bottom line is. I learned how the trick is done. It's not magic. Once you learn how it's done, what you realize, it's hard work, it's education, it's practice, and it's more practice until you get it right. So when you see somebody else doing well, when you see a competitor that's beating you, don't be intimidated. Don't think it's magic. If you do all those things to gain the knowledge and the hard work, then you can do it too. And then other people will be looking at you and saying, oh my gosh, I wonder how he or she does it. Remember. 
it's not magic, it's magical. I love it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, thanks again for tuning in. This has been the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, here with Barry Habib. And uh, please keep checking us out. Leave us a good review, especially on today's episode. And we'll see you next week. The Kaderna Podcast is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not provide tax, legal, social security, student loan, mortgage, or real estate advice. Listeners should contact their own tax, accounting, or legal advisors or the social security department in this matter. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PASS, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Securities, products, services, and advisory services are offered through PASS, a registered broker, dealer, and investment advisor, 973-244-4420. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PASS is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team and International Planning Alliance, LLC, are not affiliates or subsidiaries of PASS or Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is a division of International Planning Alliance, LLC, a general agency of Guardian. PASS is a member of FINRA, SIPC, California Insurance License Number, OK04194. Content of the Kaderna Podcast is copyright of Brian M. Kaderna, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without prior permission from the Kaderna Podcast. The views and opinions expressed herein may not be those of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Guardian does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information or opinions presented herein. Any third-party materials referenced cannot be endorsed or verified by Guardian and are used as the opinion of the author. Guardian and subsidiaries of affiliates do not provide or issue or advise for mortgages. This material contains the current opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice.